Hello and welcome to the It's Not Personal podcast, a podcast about making work more engaging, more fulfilling, and ultimately more human by taking the ego out of leadership. I am here with Ken Grady, a Fortune 500 CIO and business leader, as well as gentleman farmer and snappy dresser. And I'm here with Seth Rigoletti, my always friend and often collaborator and co-conspirator. Seth is an executive and communications coach who's worked with a number of different organizations and whose superpower is helping people understand the difference between what's being said and what's being heard. I gotta tell you the story. After our last last episode, you know, I was I was feeling so good about our conversation about you know whether or not you know you sh- what benefit or or, mm-hmm. or how is an apology useful mm-hmm. in the work setting, you know, for making a mistake, for something going wrong, for whatever. And I really I really enjoyed the conversation, by the way. But I was, and in yeah. fact, I enjoyed it so much that as I was driving home, I called my my bride and. and um, was telling her about it, and I was telling her about, like, you know, the fact that I say, never apologize for doing your job, never apologize at work, you know, unless you, like, spill tea on somebody or whatever. And she said, yeah, I, I disagree with you. You're just kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she said, you know, like, there are these, these, and I don't disagree with her. She's, you know, she said, and we, and we touched on this, that sometimes saying I'm sorry is sort of a social, interpersonal lubricant for mm-hmm. the relationship. And, and I did, we did go on to talk about like, you know, what I meant by not apologizing for doing your job and making sure that you're always thinking about, you know, okay, so what are, how are we going to move forward? But I just, I had to share that story because I told you at the beginning of that session that that was going to be one of our most controversial discussions we'd have. Right. We'll find out. (laughs) We'll find out. I I have been thinking nonstop about um, what we talked about and, you know, the other side of Wookie mm. is saying that I, I was thinking about how I notice so much more now all of a sudden, like the things that I say I'm sorry for. Interesting. That I don't actually, like, I'm like, why am I saying I'm sorry here? Like, you know, so someone asked me for a favor mm. to give them a few minutes of time. And I said, I'm going to try to squeeze you in. I'm going to try to find time in here. And then I'm like coming in couple minutes late and I start off with I'm sorry <laughs> I only have a short amount of time and I'm like why am I apologizing or even I, I just make me think of something because somebody asked me actually between our last session and now is like can I can I find half an hour in your calendar today and I said I'm sorry I'm busy today right. I'm committed why am I sorry I'm not I'm committed you asked me for time and again I'm not trying to be rude I'm just saying you know let's find another time but it's just such an interesting it's a, it's a reflex. It's a reflex. It's a reflex. And I think that that's the piece that we're, we're always trying to, in this work, when we're talking about it, when we talk about, you know, the way that we are when we're at work and the way that we lead when we're at work, mm-hmm. it's very important that we surface the reflexes, the unconscious things that we do, the habits, the patterns that we have, whether it's in our own personal communication or in the way that we run the organization as a whole, right? right? Because if you can surface those things, you might actually be able to get more clarity and better uh, collaboration between between groups. Well, this is the piece, you know, when we think about how we lead organizations, do we expect people to apologize for doing their job? Do we expect people to or, apologize? Or for being who they are. For being who they are. Right? That's that's the That was the core takeaway for me from that last one. 
But we started to get into a point or, or into the discussion, and actually it's really interesting because I do think they're related. You know, a lot of our, our episode to episode, these, these things tie together. But I, we started to talk about self-doubt, which is one of the reasons why I think we reflexively apologize sometimes. It might, it might be, but let's make sure, let's, let's unpack the just a term. Right? Yeah, let's talk about self-doubt. Right. So I said something last time. I real I've been reflecting on it. Last time we talked, I was like the teaser for this one. Mm. And I had said something like, you know, self-doubt is not always uh, a negative. And I've been thinking about that. I didn't mean that, right? I didn't mean self-doubt. Self-doubt, I think, is 100% negative. Mm. I, I don't think it's ever a good thing mm. to doubt who you are. Doubt itself, mm. right? Doubt is something that is positive. It can be positive. Sorry, it can be positive. It's powerful. It's really, uh, uh, if you can apply it to the right things, it's really interesting. Mm. It can lead to humility. It can lead to an open mind. It can lead to more flexible thinking, mm. right? Mm. But but self-doubt itself, self-doubt in, in, in its own concept, I just think is like, it's, it's corrosive to our very being. Well, when you talk about self-doubt, the, the thing that comes to mind for me is, and it's, it's, not, the only, um, it's not the only manifestation of self-doubt, but imposter syndrome. Yeah, what is that? When, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm really not qualified to comment on this, to speak about this, to lead this, to do this role, to take that assignment, you know, whatever it is. That's kind of that imposter. People are going to find out that I'm not qualified to do this thing or that I'm not the best person to do this thing. And that to me is like the one of at least the kind of ultimate manifestations of self-doubt. Yeah, that that exa- I remember one time seeing a New Yorker cartoon, that's just the way you're describing it. And the New Yorker cartoon, it was a very it's a very complex like storyline in, mm. in like one block one blocks, but basically there was like this. a there was a, a an opera, you could see the audience right, from the stage. Mm. So you see all these people in the audience and on the stage, some something happened, like someone got knocked out by a prop or, or mm-hmm. something fell from the ceiling and there's a, a, one of the opera singers yelling out to the audience, is there a doctor in the house? Mm. And way up in the balcony, there's like a little thought bubble above one of the guys and the guy says, am I a doctor? <laughs> And I see that as an imposter syndrome too. Like, yeah. like, am I, am I really this thing? Am I this thing? Do I have this skill? Do I, am I this person? And that's like uh, really damaging to certain people when they mm-hmm. when they start mm-hmm. to doubt themselves in that way. And what's interesting about it is, I mean, unless you are a psychopath, like you are legitimately diagnosed diagnosed a psychopath, I, I think this is common. This is a common part of the human experience, right? I don't think there's any one of us that hasn't felt asked themselves that question in a moment. Well, do you? Of course. Tell me about it. So, you know, it's I, I've been lucky, as we talked about over the course of my career, to hold some really interesting jobs, work with really interesting people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you the story. I was sitting at lunch with a former boss of mine. Um, great guy, and we were talking about, or he was talking to, we had a few of us sitting at lunch, and he was talking to one of my other colleagues there who's a research scientist, PhD, research yeah. scientist, biologist. Um, and they were just sharing college memories, university memories. 
And he asked me something along the lines of, you know, tell me about your graduation or something. And I said, well, I didn't graduate. I actually don't have a four-year degree, mm. uh, let alone a graduate degree. And here I am. It was it was a funny moment because, and this was a moment where I've, I've already gotten past, like, the self-doubt over this. But there have been times in the past where I've had, when I'm in meetings with very well-educated people, um, and... You know, here I am, as not only did I um, not graduate from Georgia Tech where I started, um, they were, and they were very polite when they put me on <laughs> academic suspension and suggested I consider my future elsewhere. And the truth was, I was very young. I graduated high school early. I was, you know, in university before I was really ready. And I went on, obviously, to, went on to the military, uh, went to the Defense Language Institute and graduated that and kind of got experience elsewhere. Well, slow down. So, Say, well, slow down, because I don't think everybody knows that story. Okay. So just, just really, you don't have to tell the whole story, but just. So what happened? So I graduated high school early. I was youngish. How, how early? Uh, just a year. I was seventeen. Seventeen. Um, and got accepted to Georgia Tech, which is great. a great school. Which is a great school, based on the strength of of really my test scores, not my grades, but right. that's great. It was local. And I went for just over a year, like whatever it was, a year and a semester, a year and a quarter, I think they were on. And it turns out it's difficult to get good grades at a academically rigorous school like Georgia Tech if you don't go to class. Oh, I, yeah, I had heard that. I, you know, I, I had that. skated through my high school with not really developing good habits. I also, because I lived in the area, I chose to live at home rather than going to the dorm. And so that was, traffic was a, an excuse, anyway, not to go. But anyway, um, first I was on probation, then suspension, I think it was, academic. Mm -hmm. I forget the order. It's been many, many years. Mm -hmm. And when I was casting about for what's next, I actually ended up going, enlisting in the Army and becoming a translator. And went to the language school and learned Arabic. So and learned many other lessons in the military, which was, I have to say, you know, for me at that time, a, a great and rewarding experience uh, on many levels. And then when I got out, I had studied computer engineering at Tech, and then it was the late 90s and moved to California. And at that point, anybody with a pulse basically could get a job in the dot-com era. Right. So I was really fortunate that most of my education came through uh, practical experience mm -hmm. in the field and, and uh, was um, able to grow my career through, you know, sub, um, a number of opportunities. But here's the point I wanted to make, back tying it back to self-doubt, was because I didn't have the traditional path into the industry and the formal education. And by the way, this is an interesting, I don't have, I wish I had better data on this. But in the tech industry, in the tech field, in IT, in software engineering and development, um, anecdotally, and I, I, I do look at these numbers, but it's hard to get kind of an industry-wide survey mm -hmm. of this, but only about 50% of people in the field, in my experience, actually studied computer science or computer engineering or mathematics or something and found their way into the field. So it's, it's, it's un not unique, but it's somewhat special. Mm an industry that this is a field that you can come at through non-traditional paths. And that's why I have a lot of passion around that uh, and helping create those opportunities for others. But anyway, 
there have been plenty of moments where I have been in meetings and wanting to ask questions about, oh, any number of things on the project, et cetera. And especially early in my career, well, wait a minute, can I ask that? I mean, you know, yeah. is, am I going to look like an idiot if I ask that yeah. question? Should I already know that? Yeah. Right? And then what I learned through that was, and I know people have, would have heard this, but often if you've got the question in your head, so do a bunch of other people in the room. Right. So being able to ask that question and setting your, back to our premise of a lot of what we're talking about the podcast, but setting your ego aside to ask the question can right. often lead to better conversation. and overcome. If you can not listen to that self-doubt in your head, um, creates those opportunities. Yeah. I like that. I mean, it's a great story, Ken. And, and I think, you know, typically in my experience, when we, when we feel, when we, when we doubt ourselves, when, mm. we, when we doubt ourselves, it's usually situational, right? Like I'm not smart enough for this to mm. be in this meeting or I'm, mm. I'm, I'm going to get something that this fear of like being found out is what you said I think, mm. earlier. And it's interesting when you talk about something like this, like, like, like just for example, not having a four-year degree, mm. right? And and being okay with that, like being like comfortable with it, like knowing that you have value and you bring value mm. to the situation, and it's and that um, and that many of the people you work with came to this with untraditional, non-traditional mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, paths. There's something really interesting, like it's more it's more grounded in a way than than if you were to be confident, right? If you were to be confident in your ability simply because you went to a four year college, mm -hmm. simply yeah. because you have letters, you know, after your name, yeah. Like, I I wonder if there isn't something. I mean, it's a harder road for sure in terms oh, of like feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny too because you know at that lunch where where that came up and and I shared well no I don't actually have a degree my my boss was terribly embarrassed and I think he was almost em nicest guy in the world but I think he was almost embarrassed for me at the yeah, moment yeah yeah and yeah. I said you don't need to be embarrassed for like I have come to terms with this I've done okay I've 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 been able to feed my family and you know. Uh, pay the bills. So <laughs> I'm okay with this at this yeah. point. And I had to kind of reassure him. I said, no, it's it's okay. It's okay to talk about this. Um, but there's certainly, I mean, plenty of examples. And I was really curious because you, you've shared a little bit about your story mm. of moving from the education world mm. into a completely different field right. of coaching leaders and executives and others on both communications and presence and voice and mm. things. And and I think you touched on this before, but you 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 had to experience your own doubt <laughs> in making that leap. Yeah, yeah, I know so much so, right? That imposter syndrome thing was really interesting, especially early on, because I <clears throat> I um. So first of all, just let me just say, like, standing in front of a classroom of teenagers will give you the most profound sense of self of, of self doubt. Like you just like I can't believe like I have teenagers in my house. Right? I can only imagine. Right. I mean, it's just it's very like you say things, and sometimes they write stuff down. Sometimes they roll their eyes. You don't know, like, you know, it, I and I. I think that there's a lot of humility that can be gained from that, but I think there's also, you know, it's hard. It's very mm. scary. Like, like 
people who've never, if you've never taught before, I, I recommend it. Like, try it. Like, it's really hard to stand up there and, and talk about things in a way that people will hear. But switching from that mm. and saying, <laughs> saying to people, like, oh, I'm going to be an executive coach. I'm going to be a leadership communication coach. And I actually had people, I actually had people, like, say to me, what makes you think you could do that. <laughs> like, what? like, like in that, in that way, right? Like yeah. what? And I like, I, I, I was so embarrassed and, and, uh, kind of like confused. Like I was like, well, I don't, I don't actually know. Like, I don't know, like what makes me think I can do it. And I, I, I gave terrible answers. And I remember the first time that I, you know, when I, I told you at one of the other episodes that I had, I had done, subcontracting work and we had done work mm. with pharmaceutical companies and the first like I was brought in like as a let's let's you can come and watch mm-hmm. and then we can see you you can see what it is and I'm going to put you on probation for the mm-hmm. next you know couple months and we'll see how you do so I'm standing there and this guy who's like MD PhD like smartest you know person in the room kind of comes up to me and he was young and he's like so how long have you been doing this you know, it's, it's can't wait to hear what you have to say, and I lied. Oh, <laughs> I just lied. You know? You're stuck. I was like, oh, because, and I and I and I didn't know what to say because I was too embarrassed to admit that I didn't mm. that I didn't have the experience, and also I didn't know whether I would get fired for telling them the truth either. <laughs> but but the thing was that like it it was it took moments of doing it and noticing that it was working. Mm. And, and I'll, I know it's a long story, but I'll wrap up just yeah. and say that like years later, I ran in. I was at an event, a uh, fundraising event, and I ran into somebody who knew me as a teacher, and he was a businessman. And he, um, he was asking me. He's like, "Didn't are you doing something?" He's like, "Did you leave teaching?" And I was like, "Yeah, I left teaching." And I said, "What do you do?" And and uh, and I told him. I told him I do this leadership communication coach. Mm. And I, mm. And he and he steps back and he look gives me a look, and he's like, "Why did you think you could do that?" <laughs> and I, I was like, looked at him and I I felt that fear, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, why? And I just I took a breath, and this is something I want us all to remember is like, I just said, I don't know, I just do it. Mm-hmm. Like I just do it, and and people hire me to do it. And then I looked in the wall, and I saw all these names of all these corporations yeah. that were fun, you know, sponsoring this event. And I was like, and I've worked with fifty percent of the companies on that wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, experience is its own like it's confidence. its own thing, yeah. right? If you're willing to accept it, if well, you're willing I'll, to own it, I'll tell you because I, I do. There's another kind of self doubt as a leader, as an organization that I want to talk to you, but I, I'll actually. As you were telling that story, I remember my own moment where I got sort of over the imposter syndrome mm. and where I was, you know, this was before the lunchtime conversation I just shared. At a, at a previous company, uh, I actually worked with, um, well, our chief scientific officer was a Nobel laureate. Mm. Clearly smart. Knighted by the queen. Smart. Um, and 
he was, you know, like I said, he led our research. He, led the chief he was a chief scientific officer, been there for many years. And he sent me uh, an email once, and, uh, and actually he more than once, but <laughs> in his one particular time, he said, Ken, he sent me an email, he said, Ken, I'm in Cuba. And he was there for some scientific, like, you know, nonprofit kind of development. This was a decade or more ago, just bear that in mind. He said, I'm in Cuba, and the internet is slow. Like, he wanted me to fix it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, there is something that happens when you win that gold medal, by the way. Yeah, like right. You, 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 <laughs> you sort of move into this different <laughs> ecosystem of, of things and, and things that happen. But in that moment, what I realized was, you know, as educated and as smart and as, I mean, the contributions that this man had made to the advancement of understanding of science and the human genome were phenomenal, off mm. the charts. But he didn't know what I knew. Mm. He didn't know... Why the internet was slow in Cuba, yeah. and that I could not fix that, right. you know. But I so it was, you know, I helped set his expectations. I said, yeah, it's going to be that way um, until you get out. Uh, and so, yeah. but it was this moment where I said, wow, this guy—he was a great guy, you know, uh, still is a great guy. But um, the fact that I at this moment where I recognized, I said, oh wow, he's asking me because he thinks I'm an expert in this field, um, and I do have knowledge that he doesn't have. Yeah. And I was, to your point, I was hired for a reason. I'm leading this team for a reason. I'm on the leadership team of mm -hmm. this organization, this company, for a reason. Mm -hmm. They value my contribution. And so it was this moment where I just thought, oh, wow, there you go. This is, you know, as educated or as smart or as whatever yeah. as you can be, you know, I have value in this, this circumstance. Yeah, and I think, I think that, so let's talk about, like, where the, the um, uncertainty comes from, mm. right? Because that's a great example of... <clears throat> you realizing, oh, I have value and right. I know something and, you know, I may not know everything, but I know something about this and this person. I know a thing. Right. Yeah. That, that has, has, but where does the uncertainty come from, right? Like where, do, why do we start doubting ourselves? But, so let me make a, a distinction. There's a big difference between doubting whether I can do a thing, mm. right? You know, can I play piano? Like, well, I, I it's probably like, what do I actually know about piano? What could I actually like? Do <laughs> I, I actually, ever played piano before? Right? I have ever <laughs> played piano before? Like, like there, and and I think you know if I'm going to jump across a ravine, like right. you know, do I really think I can like make that jump, or or you know, should I get a, apply for a job? Do I really like these doubting of like, is it is this in my wheelhouse as we say, right? Mm. Like, is this something I can actually do? That actually is worthwhile. Absolutely, right? So when does it become not worthwhile? I think when it becomes number one a distraction, you know, when you're when you're using energy, especially the self doubt that I think is especially corrosive is the after the fact self doubt. Did I do well in that meeting? Did I did I mm. did I say something silly? Did people walk away with the wrong impression of me? Was I was I leadery in that meeting? Mm. You know that that kind of uh, thinking that can spiral and suck up your energy and keep you from focusing on the wait. What does it forward. do? What I, does it do? If I if I if I come out of a meeting and mm. I say, was I leaderly enough? Yeah. Right. What what happens to you if you if you think that? I think you start to pull in and become less willing to take the brave step or ask the brave question or coach the you know your team the yeah. right way you become uh passive rather than active so, as a leader yeah and i think you said pull in which i think is right but i from from an acting standpoint 
what I think, what I usually say is you, you start sitting in the seats. Mm. You start like trying to watch yourself mm. and you're trying to judge and critique what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Because on some level, you're trying to meet some measurement that you mm -hmm. can't actually measure. So it's like, as soon as I walk out of the meeting and I say, was I leaderly enough, right? I'm trying to imagine how people experienced me from my own lens, which by the way, is always gonna make you doubt yourself. Yes. Every time you try to, unless you're a sociopath, right? right. Like, right. like w w in which case, what I mean by that, no, no, it's not technical. What I mean by that is if you're somebody who is uh, not sensitive to how you're being seen. Like mm -hmm. you don't care about how other people think about right. you, right? And That's I mean hard. that I mean that like in a in like a real like like off the charts you don't care. And not in some flippant way. Yeah. Right? And I mean like if you don't care then then it doesn't make any difference. You're not walking out of that meeting doubting anything you say. <laughs> but if you if you care at all about what other people say and you start thinking about what they think about you mm. There is no point in time that that will happen without you thinking there's something wrong with you that you have to correct. Yeah. And you will constantly try to correct that based upon what you think other people are thinking of you. Yeah, and there's a there's a nuance and a distinction that I think is important. Because I obviously I think about all the time, yeah. is my team or my colleagues getting what they need from me? That is a very That's different a, question. Such a different question. Right. So right. obviously I think about are they getting what they need from me? But if I think about are they judging my my leadership, you know, qualities. Well, well this gets back to the ego, right? Yes, so exactly. Like the difference is like, am I thinking about me? Yes. Or am I thinking about them? Right. That yeah. is the difference. So the 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 thing that happens on stage, uh, which can bring this insecurity, this like questioning, mm. is like what comes on stage is you 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 start to sit in the audience, figuratively speaking, and watch yourself, and then you try to measure up to what you think the audience is experiencing of you, and then you become wooden. You become mm -hmm. awkward. That's the drawn in that you yeah. talked about. Yeah. You become timid. Yeah. Well, that's, you, that was the, that's the better word, because I was saying you don't become brave enough right, to right, take right. the next risk. And then when you become timid, guess what? How does the audience feel about you? Yeah, they don't want to follow you. They don't want to follow. Sure. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to. They don't want to. They don't want to see you. And that happens in leadership all the time. Well, let me, because you mentioned it does. It absolutely does. But I, I, I want to bring up this other kind of aspect of self doubt. And you, you sort of touched on it, or we were touching on it when we were talking about is the team getting what they need for me, and just talking about the organizational self doubt, right? And I've seen this in a lot of organizations, a lot of teams, when. You're facing a project, uh, facing a, a decision, facing a challenge, yeah. you know, whatever it is, a budget challenge, a, a new feature, a new something, a timeline challenge. I don't know if we can get there. You know, mm -hmm. this is this is a thing. And I mean, and again, I want to differentiate between a true assessment of what will it take for us to achieve this, to overcome this challenge, and the Whirl the swirl that can come with like oh my god we're gonna make another mistake you know something happened whatever and this and again it gets back to our last discussion about you know apologizing and spending time on that rather than what will it take and you know this is where I, a few episodes ago we talked about gratitude and its impact on resilience mm. this is why I wanted to talk about this because. The self-doubt in an organization can be, we've seen it. You've seen organizations that feel timid, back yeah. to that, that feel... Scared. Scared. Yeah. You feel scared. You know, the other parts of the organization, the other parts of your company, 
may not trust you, mm. may not have confidence in you. Mm. And so it can feed this sort of organizational self-doubt. And tying back to the gratitude, this is one of the things I was thinking of after that discussion. One of the ways to avoid that organizational self-doubt, I think, is by reflecting, we have overcome all the challenges to this point. Being in that mindset of optimistic gratitude, that you're working with smart people, that you were hired for a reason. Well, start right there. You were hired for a reason. You were hired for a reason. You have the qualifications, the experience, and the trust of the organization to do this thing that you do. And rather than spending that energy needlessly on the self-doubt and becoming wooden in your leadership, grounding yourself in the trust that you've already built to this point with your team, and looking forward rather than backwards. This is the thing about self-doubt, is it's always looking backwards. Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're gonna th- unpack this a little bit, because this is actually, I think, an important, the, the, there's a problem, mm. right? Your boss is in Cuba and the internet's low, right? <laughs> there's a problem. And, and just thinking about this, like when, when I tie my ego mm-hmm. to how difficult I think the problem is, Yes. Right, and, and this is, I'm gonna say this, is not just about self-doubt. When I tie my ego to that, yeah. if I have a grandiose personality, I'm gonna think, I can solve this, mm. right? I can solve Cuba, <laughs> right? And if I'm insecure, I will also think I have to solve this, mm. because mm. if I don't solve this, then I don't, I don't deserve this job. And there's this weird dynamic that ha- where the biggest thing you did for him mm-hmm. was just explain to him that this is just what it is. Yeah. Right? This isn't like, you know, out of our span of control, this is Cuba. And like, you know, when you come back here, guess what? You'll have better internet. Right. 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 But that's something that we don't do in organizations. You do this really well with your teams. Like, like sometimes it's okay to say, well, you know, that that's not something we can do. Or yeah. that's not something, or, or or we don't know right now if that's something yes. we can do, right? We don't know. Let's go find out. Well, this is the thing about, you know, and, and I like how you frame that because I do think that self-doubt really is directly tied to ego, right? Oh, because sorry. if you're in that moment of self-doubt, you know, one of the other implications, whether it's individually or organizationally, is being afraid to admit what you don't know, right? Yeah. Because you're, oh my God, maybe they won't trust me anymore. Being afraid to ask for help. I don't know how to solve this problem. I need the expertise, the experience of somebody else, mm. right? And I think that self-doubt is this, this wall between you and asking your team, your colleagues, and others for help. Or, to your point about Cuba, having a conversation about what is and is not within the span of control because you're afraid of looking silly, you're afraid of looking, uh, of losing uh, respect, yeah. you know, or whatever it is that's causing you fear. Well, so status, status. It comes back to this status. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm gonna lose face. I'm gonna lose. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose some sort of position. Mm-hmm. You know, I think ultimately, we are so afraid of being found out and kicked out. I don't mean, I, I know this is probably not, I can generalize about every single person, but I know socially speaking, as an, as an organization, as, mm, a, mm. as a, a human being, 
we live and die in our social connections. And we really worry. Like mm-hmm. we worry like I might somehow do something. This mm-hmm. is why this is why uh culture is so powerful, mm. right? Because culture is like we don't do that here. Mm-hmm. Or we do this here. Like we don't, you know, blame people here. Like when you can create a culture like that, people will change how they behave to mm-hmm. fit in with that culture. It's also why it's so hard, right? Because everybody's worried about themselves mm-hmm. that you can like get you you can lose the ability to stand up for what you believe to be right. Oh, and as a leader, you have so much impact. Mm. on whether or not the culture promotes self-doubt. Mm. What I mean by that, you know, a culture that is one where fear is real. Oh, so much. Right? Well, talk, talk about that. Fear, fear of what? Fear of, and it could be of, of many things, but, you know, fear of, if you're, if you're, if you work in an organization where um, voicing a contrary opinion can get you kicked out of the social circle, you know, and by that I mean like status, the meeting, invites, the whatever it is, then people are going to have self-doubt about whether or not they're willing to voice an unpopular or contrary opinion. If you work as a part of an organization where mistakes are not tolerated, right, perfection is the rule. The expectation, right. Then the expectation, then people are going to have self-doubt and have fear about not being able to fulfill the expectation or the commitment. And so what's going to happen with that is you're going to, those are the organizations that (laughs) at the same time they'll be complaining about we're not moving fast enough, we're not agile enough, we're not taking enough risks or enough chances, we're not gambling enough, we're making uh, educated bets on what to invest in, uh, where to spend our time. Same organization, but it's one that, you know, well, we have an expectation of perfection. I don't think you can have both simultaneously. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to have that freedom to be creative and and express yourself and, and share your voice if you know yeah. that you're gonna get the you know, that that's actually not supposed to be a semicolon, that should be a period kind of like yeah. you know, in in this this is an example, um, again, it's a, maybe a little abstract for people, but I was in a play once uh, where I had a, it was very, it was Macbeth. It was very hard. Mm. Um, and, uh, and it was a, it, it was, it was something that I did. It was a passion project. It was something I worked really hard on. I hired the director. I produced it. I mm. starred in it. It was a, it was just, if anyone's wondering, I got the worst review in the <laughs> worst world. It was like, it was such uh, it was such a blow to the ego, but there was this thing that kept happening in rehearsal that I remember like I was so scared mm. because I had mm. taken on so much. Mm. I had really put myself out there and I was a little bit arrogant because I was young and I was like, I can do this. Whatever it is, I can do mm. it. And I remember the director, and he was doing the best he could too, but I remember the director saying, talking to me for 20 minutes about what he wants the scene to look like. Mm-hmm. Like 20 minutes explaining like the whole dissertation of this one scene and what it should do and what I should do and how I should act. And I'm like, just hoping I remember the lines, right? <laughs> yeah. And I said, yep, I got it. Let's get going. Let's let's do the scene. And I would step on the stage and I would get one word out and he would say, stop. You're not doing any of the things I asked you to do. You know, I... I just stepped on the stage and said like one or two words and I was like, oh my God, like now I'm scared. Right. And he says, 
you need you to do and he lists all the things again and now yeah. i'm thinking he's going to do the whole thing again he's going to tell me the whole dissertation like i, I so then the next time i came out i was even more, more rigid scared. more scared and i was worse <laughs> and i think that the and he was frustrated and i was frustrated and and the thing is is that like when you're trying to get somebody to show up in a yeah. bigger way right you're trying yeah. to get someone to show up in their full self yeah you know, we we can't we can't do we have to make sure we're not doing things that scare them more. Right, right, right. And in this regard, you know, my my motto uh, with my team is, you know, we have a high tolerance for mistakes. We have a low tolerance for failure. And my job is to help ensure you don't fail. Mm. Right, as a leader, remove obstacles, make sure we have the resources, make sure we have priorities clear. We we understand how we make decisions. Mm. But if you know, and that I think takes the the fear out because you got to make mistakes, but we're going to help each other make sure we don't fail in our direction overall. Because this is this is what I see in organizations that really, you know, struggle with this. And, and again, a lot of it I do think is it's more about. I actually see very few organizations that I would say uh, this is probably my naivete speaking, but that are like consciously toxic. Like, there's not a lot of organization. You work with more organizations than I do, but like, well, I you choose to, to be toxic. Well, I don't, I don't think anyone chooses to be toxic. But <laughs> right. let's but but let's let let's just let's go back, right? Because right. this failure piece is like important. The, well, the thing. Let me finish that thought real quick. But the the thing that um, I think this this unconscious toxicity that creates self doubt is this quest for perfection. That's where I was going with that, and, that, yeah. and which sounds good, right? Well, we'll talk about what you mean by mistakes. The difference between mistakes and failure. Hmm. So it's, it's uh, well, working in the software world, it's very typical, and we have processes around uh, mitigating this, but you find defects in code. And, you, you know, you write the code, and it's funny you mentioned that example, because often, you know, one lost semicolon causes things to go wacky. Or an even more common example is um, unintended use cases. You know, you don't expect a form to be, people to hit submit on a web form, without having filled in all the information mm. or with maybe they put a special character in a field that wasn't intended to design that. Very, very typical kind of things you find in code. And we actually have quality tests that we, um, we all of us in the, in the industry have developed over these kind of things. And there's lots of different examples. There's some of the simpler ones. But, you know, sometimes even with all those quality tests, a defect escapes into production. Yeah. Like into the wild. And so your customer might have an unintended or unexpected experience. It happens. It happens. Mm -hmm. Or like, I don't know, Amazon's region East 1 goes down, right? right? Right. And so you have this unintended consequence. Those are all mistakes. There's examples of mistakes. Um, failure would be, we talked about the principle of designing for failure last time. Failure would be not being able to recover, not being able to marshal the resources pull together, all hands on deck, let's go make it right again, mm. right? That's failure. And that's where, you know, organizations that don't have the ability to do that really do, when something goes wrong, they struggle. Um, and those are software examples. There are human examples of those, organizational examples of those. Um, we all got sort of a masterclass in, in business continuity and resilience over the last couple of years of COVID, right, where we learned more about this. But we did it. The organizations that really did well through that were those that had internal resilience and a willingness to ask brave questions, suggest, you know, um, 
uh, options or opinions that might be contrary to the conventional wisdom. And leaders that created that, when, if, when coming into situations like that, and again, we have this unique moment in our history with the COVID uh, pandemic where many, many organizations were tested. And I think those organizations that didn't have the resilience created through leadership that, you know, had looked to lower fear and self-doubt and increase uh, kind of uh, um, independence of thought and tolerance for mistakes and trying things and trying them again and supporting one another, you could tell the difference in the right. outcomes. Right. The impact it has, going back to your, your point about toxic cultures, like mm -hmm. when you when you make those decisions and you create a, that, that brittleness, the, the, the perfection always leads to brittleness in yeah. my mind, right? When you create that brittleness within the organization, the, the toxicity comes because we are, are it seems to be that our inclination is when we get scared and things feel brittle, the system feels brittle, the yeah. leadership feels brittle, that we start to blame. Mm. You know, we, we look to, to either blame, shame, or control. And I think about that, like, it seems like productive to most people. You know, when I, you know, it's if why why did this go wrong? Why yeah. did we have a bug in the system? Yeah. Right? And and it it seems productive to be like, Ken did it. Ken was <laughs> the one working on it. You know, like now we know who did it. Like, uh, kill, kill Ken. Like, you know, it's like all that weird. Like, <laughs> it is straight. I mean, I and again, there's you know, I want to make sure our listeners don't misunderstand us. You know, there are learnings from that and there are uh we talked about accountability last time and the difference between you know taking accountability and you know this apology thing and uh, but i've i mean i've done things made mistakes i had you know and have people on my team i have one guy network engineer on my team basically take down the data center like everything just he tripped over the main cord basically virtually and people act like are there going to be consequences like no because i guarantee that guy never going to make that mistake again right. Right, he learned from it, and I mean, did we give him? Did, did I kid him a lot and tease? Absolutely, because that's part of the fun. But the the this notion of blame for a human error um, is counterproductive because what it does is it teaches right. others that if you make a human error, right. your job's on the line. So that's that's actually, um, in in we'll get back to the, the the what it this has to do with the doubting ourselves, mm -hmm. but like. The, the fragility of that perfection world is that we have to get, like, like it's like mistakes are, are the outliers in that world. Like, it's like the assumption is that, that, that if you do everything perfectly, there will never be a mistake. Mm. And I think that's just, I mean, in my experience, that's not how... So, 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 what is a mistake, right? Like, what is what does that actually mean, and and what do we actually mean when we say a mistake? Like, it's usually perception. It's usually something that we think should have happened a certain way. Mm -hmm. We usually learn a lot. This is what science is like. The whole concept of science or or of um, you know experimentation is to say we have an assumption. We're gonna run that that assumption through a series of of tests, and then we're gonna see like did it fail or did it did it did it work? But failure is information to figure out what what happened, yes. right? Where's the breakdown? What what what, are, what was wrong about our assumptions? And we don't really apply that when we have that perfect that perfection culture, that brittle culture. 
right? We don't really apply that kind of sense of like, look, uh, we learn something yeah, from or, these things. It's a learning mentality um, to take in and really teach. And it can be very, very difficult, particularly as a young manager or leader or rising leader. I think and this was something that, you know, in, in, in my days of self-doubt as a leader, like I get, you know, assigned a team for the first time or a bigger team for the next time or whatever, thinking that I had to know everything that my team knew. Right. Right. And so this, this would right. cause me self-doubt as well, right. um, was I should be able to do any of their jobs as a leader. And often when you're first promoted to be a manager, that's often the case. Because you were a developer or a project manager, yeah. and you got promoted because you're a good project manager, and now you're managing project managers, and you can coach them on their job because God, you've done their job. So true. So so just linking them together, right? Yeah. So linking them together, that idea of, like, I have to get it. I have to know everything. Yeah. I have to know everything that everyone's doing, and I have yeah. to be able to do everything everyone's doing. Yeah, right? and I, I think this is, we've all heard of the Peter Principle. Right. And there is some validity to it. This is when you get promoted to your level of incompetence, right? You get promoted right. until you're not able to be promoted anymore because you've maxed right. out. There's some validity to it. There's been some research on it even. But I think that what leaders need to recognize as you grow is that the nature of your job has changed. You're no longer supposed to be an expert at everything your people under you do or in your organization do. Now you're supposed to help the people in your organization be better at what they do. Yeah. And to do that doesn't mean you have to know right. how exactly, like I'm not a network engineer, right. you know, even though I lead a large IT. I think I've done almost every job in IT over the course of my career, except network engineering. Um, and I tell those guys, you have to speak to me in primary colors and single syllables because yeah. I don't know what you're doing. Um, and they, they're kind, they do, but I sort of know the basic, but the, the notion that I need to be a qualified network engineer isn't actually my job. I need to make sure I understand how to hire and promote and develop and, you know, assemble a team that has those skills. And that's, that's where I think if you're, if you're in that perfection culture and if you're in that, that, that moment where you're like, well, I, I need to be able to step in and roll my sleeves up and do this. Yeah you're going to have a lot of self-doubt with it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The perfectionist quality is going to create anxiety and mm. self-doubt. Mm. And and it's kind of funny because you're the you think like, "Oh, I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to know everything." Right. And that way I'll never doubt myself. Yeah. Right? I'll always know, I'll always trust because I'll know everything. And that and you know, I, good luck with that. Right? Like in my <laughs> in my experience that that only leads to doubting yourself. Yeah, there's a there's a um, story about uh, Sir Laurence Olivier when later on in life, you know, he had been knighted, he had mm. he had achieved every accomplishment he could possibly achieve, and later on in life when he was performing, he he had tr tremendous stage fright mm. before going on stage mm. because uh, there's a story I don't know if it's apocryphal, but he had a bucket next to the stage where he would throw up sometimes before going on stage, <laughs> you know, and and why. Right? Why? Because he was Sir Laurence Olivier. Because everybody coming to the audience was coming to see Sir Laurence Olivier. And every time he stepped on stage, he's like, what if I'm not? Yeah, right? well, I'll tell what you if I'm not? a related story. And I do want to talk about what do you do when you find yourself in those moments of self-doubt? Because yeah. I think that, you know, as I said, if you're human, you're going to find yourself in those moments of self-doubt. And there are tools. And a very simple, I'm going to tell a performance story now that I heard. Right. It wasn't my own personal one, but I heard this. And uh, it's always that's always your, your the theater's uh, more your story domain. But Barbara Streisand, mm. 
has terrible stage fright. Mm. Barbara Streisand, again, incredibly talented singer, yeah. performer, writer, actress, etc. Incredible stage fright. And it's because, and I heard this story, so, you know, yeah. it's, I believe it's true. It's a credible source. But it's because one time earlier in her performance, she got on stage and she forgot some lyrics. Yeah. And so she's incredibly nervous every time she gets on stage. And somebody went to see her. Super excited to go see her. Um, you know, Madison Square Garden kind of performance kind of thing. And she looked up in the ceiling of the arena or whatever, and there was a teleprompter. Barbara Streisand was using a teleprompter to remember her lyrics. Mm. Again, I heard the story. I believe it's true. Credible source. But the point being, there are tools. When you know you're going to encounter a situation that is going to create that internal mm. dialogue, that internal fear, number one, it's important to recognize it. Name it. Yeah. This causes me to doubt. You know, this causes me. And I know for myself, for example, when I was in, like in scientific conversations, you know, research-oriented, because I work in the life sciences area, medical device, you know, and sometimes I'm in those meetings. And I've been part of the R&D leadership team, and, you know, there's lots of reasons I can contribute. But some, I'll hold on. I, my mechanism is I'll say, I'm willing to take this offline. I'm willing to answer this later. Google is one of my best friends. I Google yeah. a lot of the long words. But I say, I like better understanding of this. Like, I've just gotten myself comfortable with saying, I don't know what that is. Could you please right. spend an extra minute? Right. So I've coached and practiced myself how to do that. Or Barbara Streisand saying, I need notes for this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so she just recognize it allows you to think about how you're going yeah. to deal with it in the moment where you know it's There's, likely. Th this is a great story because it actually links to another Barbara Streisand story. Oh. It also might be, this one actually might be apocryphal. But like the, the, the thing that Barbara Streisand had to do in that moment is give up the idea that she had to be Barbara Streisand. Yes, she had, right? she had to give up the idea that she had to be perfect. Right, right. But they, but it's so embarrassing, right? It's so embarrassing to to admit that I'm, I might forget my the lyrics to a song that I've probably sung like a million times. Mm. But there's, you asked about what do you do about it? And that's one of it, right? Is like, is like give yourself whatever you need, right? To, to, to whatever the, crutches are that you need to be able to get yourself right. But then there's another piece, which is like, remind yourself who you are, mm. right? Remind yourself who you are is what you said before about like, how did you get here? Yeah. Who are you? Yeah. And, and, th and this part is controversial. What I'm going to say is so provocative mm. and fake it <laughs> because the fact is nobody knows, nobody knows what you're feeling inside. Mm. And we go to such lengths to telegraph what we're feeling inside mm. because we are worried that it might actually be true. So we want some feedback from the audience. Mm. And if we don't telegraph, if we don't tell people like, ah, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like if we don't say that kind of stuff and just pretend like I actually am here for a reason. I'm here because I do know what I'm talking about. If we do that, we have a chance to actually move through that space despite the fact that we feel insecure. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a great story about um, Barbara Streisand when, when she was auditioning uh, on Broadway. And she, well, she was very young, very young, right? And she came on. Nobody knew who she was. And she came on the stage. It was like, I can't remember who the director was, but it was supposed to be like a famous like stick-in-the-mud director. And... and um, she came out there and she was uh, chewing gum and the director 
lost his mind mm. and told the stage manager, you know, tell her to you know, get that gum out of your mouth. This is Broadway, young lady. You can't. And she took the gum out of her mouth and she stuck it right on the stool in the middle of the stage. And then she turned around and she just belted out this song. This like, you know, and Barbara Streisand, of course, she just <laughs> killed it, right? And then, and then he's like, get out of my theater. I never want to see you again. And got out of the theater and told the stage uh, manager, get up there and get that gum off the stool. And they went up there and there was no gum on the stool. Mm. Think about that confidence she had. Now, she was probably scared to death. Yeah. She was probably worried, but she knew that she needed to do something to be noticed, mm. right? She needed to do something to be noticed. And she knew she could sing, mm. right? So she was willing to get yelled at for this one thing. She was willing to, to risk I love this that. one thing. I love that story because right? this is another, you know, so I said, name it, number one. Like, know what your triggers are. Name it and think ahead of time about how do you how you help yourself through those moments. You talked about, you know being willing to just bowl through, not bowl through, but being willing to just bear through the the discomfort. Bear through without doing anything weird. Yeah, and then the third, I think this 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 other technique you said is, is well, think about what your strengths are. Right, know who you are. Know who you are, you know, in moments of self-doubt, take a moment and think about where your strengths are and how you can use those in that moment. Right. Right, to create that confidence, that leadership, that voice you know, in that connection so that, you know, you're not uh, disarming yourself or preventing yourself from contributing the value that you're there for Absolutely. as a leader, as a, as a member of the team. So the, this this is the piece. Every, we want everyone to trust themselves. Mm. We want them to. Yeah. Right? And we worry that they don't, people don't trust us. <laughs> right? And, and if we could just... Trust ourselves. I know it's easy to say, but if we could just focus on like, you belong, mm. you belong, you're enough. I know these are maybe like a little too like, I don't know, woo woo to say, but they're real. Like people worry that they're not enough. People worry that they don't belong. And if you just keep telling yourself, I belong, I am enough. It's amazing what happens. Well, I think, and a great conversation as always, Seth. Um, and I know we'll actually come back to this because, again, this is going to help us build to our next discussion, which is not all teams are teams. Yeah, no. It's and so talking true. about belonging, you just said, you know, you think about what a team is yeah. and how do you create it? How do you encourage it? Mm. How do you lead it? Mm. Great conversation for us yeah, next week. That's great. I really enjoy it again. Ken, thanks for spending an hour with me. Appreciate it. Oh, Seth, always good. I know that I'll... I think on this one, when I call my wife on the way home, she won't call me an asshole. So. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, not. <laughs> hopefully. Maybe not about this. Maybe not about this one. <laughs> She's still pretty stuck on the apology one. All right, Ken. See you next time. See you next time, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>